Al Jazeera Podcasts. On the next Necessary Tomorrows, can humans and AI be kin? We meet Cree artist Archer Pachawis. I would like to take the AI back to the res and like go to ceremonies with it, right? And teach it about our spiritual protocols in the hopes of deepening our relationship. And theorist Douglas Rushkoff. The AI that we launched was capitalism back in the 12th and 13th century. That is the program that is running. And artificial intelligence is running inside capitalism. Indigenous AI, Unnecessary Tomorrows, a new podcast by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. More than 50 people killed in fighting on South Sudan's border. A rebel group is blamed for the attacks in an oil-rich area claimed by Sudan and South Sudan. So what stirred the latest violence? Where is it leading? I'm Sami Zaydan, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's welcome our guests and bring them into the show. We have joining us from Juba, Kennedy Mabongo, Country Director for the Aid Agency Norwegian Refugee Council in South Sudan. Well, in Oxford, United Kingdom, we have Douglas Johnson. He's a scholar and on Sudan and South Sudan, who served on the Abia Border Commission. And in New York, Joshua Craze, researcher on Sudan and South Sudan. He's been in touch with parties to the conflict in Abia in the past few days. Warm welcome to everyone. If we can start with Joshua. So, Joshua, what sparked this round of the conflict? So, Abia was supposed to have a referendum in 2011 on whether it wanted to join South Sudan if it voted for independence. It didn't get that referendum. Instead, the Sudanese army displaced it to the south of the territory to a place called Agok. Now, eventually, the Sudanese army left. UNISFA, the peacekeeping force, came in, and the Ngok, who were the residents of Abia, the Ngok Dinka, managed to come back to the center. But they never came to the north of the territory, from which they've always been displaced. And there's always been the Sudanese army in the north of the territory, despite the commitment of UNISFA and of Sudan and South Sudan to demilitarize the territory. So they faced an attack from the north. But since 2022, they've also faced an attack from the south. So the Twitch, which is another Dinka group that live in Warak, which is South Sudanese President Salva Kiir's home state, have seen this market in Agok that grew up after the displacement of the Ngok and was also became a humanitarian hub for agencies and thought what they would like to do is take over it and take control of the taxes. The Twitch themselves are marginalized within the politics of Warak. So you have a weak, marginalized community, the Ngok, waiting to join South Sudan in political suspension now for over a decade, who've been attacked from the south as well as from the north and really face an existential dilemma as to their existence when they're being attacked also by the people they thought were their brothers in the South Sudan that they want to join. Okay, so basically this is an intercommunal dispute between different communities about who manages to control this area. Douglas. What is this conflict ultimately over? Land, resources, or politics? Well, I'd have to say all three. Uh, for the Nok Dinka, for the Bagara, Misaria Bagara neighbors to the north, and for the Twitch Maya Deep Dinka to the south, it's very much about land. For the Khartoum government and all the successions of the Khartoum government since uh, 2005, 
it's been about what's underneath the land, it's about the oil. Uh, and within uh, South Sudan, it really is about politics. As you, uh, Joshua said, uh, the Twitch Mayadit are part of, well, uh, President Salva Kiir comes from the Twitch Mayadit, uh, and he's under a great deal of pressure uh, to favor them. And this is probably one reason why uh, there's been almost no intervention from the government in Juba to try to establish peace uh, in that area between two groups of Dinka and between uh, South Sudan and uh, Sudan. Okay, interesting. Before we go, you've opened up a lot of details which we'd like to get into. But before we go there, let me bring in Kennedy and ask this question from the humanitarian perspective. What does another layer of conflict in Sudan and South Sudan mean for the humanitarian situation there? Uh, thank you very much. I, I'll put ABA in a broader context because when it comes to humanitarian crisis, what's happening in ABA has a link to what's happening in South Sudan. We are seeing a country which is highly in need of support. We are seeing South Sudan where 9 million people are in need of humanitarian assistance. We are seeing a country where 5.1 million people are food insecure. And so when ABA goes in tension and fighting, you'll find that people are being displaced, still crossing the border between ABA and South Sudan. And this leaves humanitarians in kind of a dilemma because many of them remain reluctant even to engage just because of what colleagues are citing, the complexity of the area, the political insensitivity, and also looking at their mandate. So really, it kind of leaves people suffering who are in need of a humanitarian assistance, but they're not getting this assistance. Oh, it's a sad situation. I want to come back to Joshua and pick up on a point, actually, that a moment ago, Douglas kind of hinted at, but let's start looking at it from the perspective of Sudan. Is the fighting, first of all, in Sudan and the politics going on there, is that causing some destabilization, the creation of vacuums that is prompting a rise in tensions in Abia? No, it's not at the moment. The Misereer and early attacks on Abia were at least working de facto in alliance with some of the Twitch militias. They're not really rebel groups, they're militias. But at the moment, South Sudanese President Salva Kiir is playing a very delicate negotiating game. It is at once paying oil transit fees to Burhan's regime, so the Sudan armed forces, while allowing the RSF, Hemeti's rapid support forces, to move oil and material um, and fuel through South Sudan, while also backing a variety of opposition groups inside South Sudan in the border regions. So for now, the only real destabilization, which Kennedy's been speaking about, has been the flows of refugees. However, with RSF attacks on places like Babanusa and the involvement, potential at least alleged involvement, of South Sudanese rebel groups in those attacks, there is the capacity for destabilization inside Abyei because the force surrounding the oil site in the north of Abyei is the Sudan armed forces who are losing the war in South Kordofan. Okay. Douglas, you hinted a moment ago at the, perhaps can we call it tribal politics or ethnic politics within South Sudan. Is that 
playing a role in limiting what the state can or cannot do to control the situation, favoring the twitch over the knock, for example? I think that it's a bit more than that. Uh, the central government of South Sudan doesn't seem to have much power in any part of South Sudan to try to in, uh, enforce peace between different groups of people. Uh, as Kennedy pointed out, this is a, a wider problem within South Sudan uh, and a, a wider problem of uh, conflict and um, uh, conflicts between different groups of people. <clears throat> but uh, the Abia issue, uh, let me just um, just mention this. I mean, the uh, some leading politicians from Twitch Mayadit were very active in opposing the uh, uh, reward uh, award of the Abia Boundaries Commission as early as 2005, uh, and they had their their uh, own agenda about the southern border between uh, Sudan and South Sudan, which uh, included the southern border between Abia and Bahagazel. All right, so the state doesn't have a lot of ability to impose peace. Kennedy, does South Sudan's central government have much capacity to handle a an increase in the humanitarian crisis in Abia? I think the challenge here, really, I think South Sudan government is struggling when it comes to resources. And when there's no adequate resources to even support uh, the crisis in South Sudan, then you can imagine what would be there for supporting ABA. So in actual sense, ABA humanitarian crisis is a huge crisis which is not given attention uh, from, 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 from the government in South Sudan because they are struggling with the resources. So the whole point here is that uh, really the international community has to look at ABA and really take the whole situation uh, very seriously, because we have numbers which are worrying in this country. I mean, almost 280 people are in need of humanitarian assistance in Abyei alone. And we are talking about close to 2,000 IDPs who have just been displaced in the last few days when the fighting started. And these people are in dire need of support, and yet little is actually reaching these people in Abyei. So it's quite a big concern in terms of support to the humanitarian crisis in Abyei. Douglas, I want to come back to a point here. How much of a threat then, listening to what you said and what Kennedy has just said there, how much of a threat is the fighting in Abia a threat to the unity of South Sudan at this point? Well, I'm just added to all the other threats to the unity of South Sudan. Yes, uh, I, I, I think it, uh, it definitely contributes to uh, destabilizing uh, South Sudan's unity. Um, the people of Abia, the Nordinka, have often uh, been uh, accused of, um, well, there have been complaints against individual politicians from the Nordinka from other people in South Sudan, so the Nordinka haven't always got a lot of um, sympathy uh, from uh, wider populations in South Sudan. There have been a number of people uh, further south who said, well, we don't really want any more Dinka in South Sudan, so we'd rather have Abia stay as part of Sudan. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know enough of the current situation to be able to say how much the RBA fighting in RBA might spark even greater conflict uh, within uh, the rest of South Sudan. But it is certainly an element uh, of the of destabilize of, of the fact that there uh, there are refugees crossing the border. There are uh, um, in both directions. Um, and uh, as long as it is part of a of an unstable border and part of a conflict that comes from both uh, north and south, uh, it's going to be. Uh, and as long as the government seems to be unable to deal with it, uh, of course, it, it's going to add to the destabilization of the country. Well, let's take the question then to Joshua, because I know that you've been in touch with the parties recently. Are you afraid that the sides are building up for further escalations? So it's not just that the government is incapable of stabilizing the border. It's that government interventions actively destabilize communities in South Sudan. These interventions are not neutral interventions by a government which somehow mediates between groups. They're interventions which are partisan on the part of one group or another. So we've seen a series of peace negotiations. We've seen a series of military interventions. But those military interventions have largely been on the side of the twitch dinker. And the reason for the current protests and the current violence has been that last week, South Sudan's President Salva Kiir gave an order to a Nur figure from Unity, so the Nur of the second largest ethnic population in South Sudan, called Guy Meshek, to return to Mayom and leave the Twitch. And he refused to do so. And in fact, it's his forces that took part and really attacked the Ngok in the south of the territory, including ambushing a returnee convoy coming from Abiyem Nom into Abye. So it has a real potential to spill out over Abye into contentions over the control of power of Warap, Kiir's home state, but also of Mayom, one of the most important states for the Nur in South Sudan. And if we see that, what does that mean? Well, it, it's a, this is an election year for Salva, of course, that the, after a long extension, finally, December 2024 should be the elections that bring to an end a transitional period that began when South Sudan's civil war ended in 2018. Should and be is the key Kier, word, isn't it? It's, it's a very delicate balancing act for Salva because Salva for five years has ruled effectively by fragmenting the opposition and setting them off against themselves. He did it this year in Riek Mashar, who's the leader of the opposition's hometown of Ler, and he used one of, Ler, one of uh, Mashar's commanders to attack the very population um, that he's supposed to be defending. So rather than this process of centralized fragmentation in which he sets oppositions against each other, he now somehow has to bring everyone together in the process of frank, fragmented centralization and somehow bring everyone back into this camp so we can prevent a unified party to stand for the elections. And that's a very delicate balancing act when he spent five years really setting communities against each other in disputes that can easily spill over and become more generalized regional conflicts. Kennedy, with this kind of fragmentation, conflict and lack of resolution to issues, can the region's humanitarian situation ever really be stabilized? I think if the ABA question doesn't find a solution, it has potentials to really cause more problems regionally, not just ABA. I say this because when it comes to displacement, what we see as humanitarians, people flee across the borders. 
and therefore people fleeing will reach other countries and this is quite serious i mean for me my big worry really is the whole issue of uh, international uh, silence on what's happening in aba and i think while this is a humanitarian crisis i think it needs a political solution and this is something which needs to be discussed seriously serious diplomatic engagement has to be on the table so that we find a solution that will then help us address the humanitarian crisis in this aba area talking about serious efforts to resolve the border issues there you douglas you were you actually served on the aba border commission why is this What's holding up a resolution? Is it the fighting that broke out in Sudan between the RSF and the army? Oh, what's holding up the resolution is that no government in Khartoum wants to uh, apply either the ABA Boundary Commission's report or the Hague ruling, uh, uh, which reduced the area of the uh, of ABA to basically the. Um, um, the, the home territory of the Nok Dinka. Uh, as long as the government in Khartoum refused to uh, demarcate the border, uh, refused to allow a referendum, uh, there is no possibility of resolving that issue. And now that the government itself is not in, in the government in Khartoum is incapable of doing anything in that border area, um, it, it really relies on South Sudan government to do something, which they're not going to do. Joshua, unresolved conflicts like that of Abye, corruption, underdevelopment, political instability. What's the bottom line here for South Sudan? Is it failing to emerge as the success story that the West advocated and championed? I think the, there was a really powerful war economy based on the exploitation of foreign resources, humanitarian aid and guns during the second civil war in Sudan that became a very powerful kleptocracy based on the exploitation of oil reserves and donor funds after South Sudanese independence. And that's its own success story for the elite in South Sudan. It's not a success story for the population, which is immiserated and hungry, and we shouldn't forget the real travails and plight of the Ngoc Dinka in all of this, stuck in Abia without a political solution. But I don't think this is a failure of the international communities if it's wished well. I think this is largely created with the acquiescence of the international community. We have to remember that huge amounts of donor funds went into building what was basically a kleptocratic state. And we have to remember that in Abia, we've had a peacekeeping force, UNISFA, there, which has, since its inception over a decade ago, failed to remove the Sudanese army from the north of the territory. So, and, you know, the entire kleptocratic system is enabled by commodity brokers, by the logics of global finance. It's too sort of, I think, basically neocolonial to say, oh, we gave these people a state and we're sorry they failed that the failures of this state are very much the liniments of the international system that Kier and the coterie of confidants around him have absolutely expertly exploited. That is a good point. Before, I do want to dig a bit deeper into it, but let me bring Kennedy back and ask this question. One of the, the, the obligations within the mandate of UNISFO was supposed to be to protect civilians to help with the distribution of humanitarian aid. Are they doing enough of that? Do humanitarian aid workers feel safe, Unit, um, Kennedy? 
I, I would say no. I mean, because when it comes to humanitarian uh, response, it needs coordination. Not one entity can really respond to such kind of a crisis. And so in IBA, we are lacking proper coordination, which can then help to respond to the uh, humanitarian crisis. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that the big challenge here is that the whole disputed status of IBA is in itself a barrier to the humanitarian access. So even if UNESCO is given that mandate, I think they are struggling to do uh, to deliver the humanitarian response, which I think is very important now. And that's why this need to look at really other mechanisms that can open up space for humanitarian response to help the people who are in need. All right. Douglas, going back to the point which Joshua mentioned there, that this is a failure basically with the acquiescence of the international community. Is that because there's too many global powers in looking at it through the prism of their own interests rather than the bigger picture of what's of the interest of the people there? In other words, a bit of a power I, struggle going on. I, I, I don't know that that's a problem. Uh, I mean, the, the three um, countries that have been most involved in RBA are the so-called Troika of the United Kingdom, United States, and Norway. Those were the ones who were very much involved in setting up the negotiations and financing the negotiations that led to the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. And they have different interests to take care of uh, right now. I mean, try to get anybody's attention on what's happening in the Sudan uh, and move that attention away from Gaza and Ukraine. Good luck on that. And uh, going from Sudan to South Sudan and even then focusing on RBA, it's going to be very difficult to get uh, a focus, uh, an, an international consensus. And in fact, in the lead up to the referendum, the independence referendum of, uh, of South Sudan, uh, the US government basically jettisoned any interest in RBA. Uh, claiming that it would be uh, um, it would be uh, wrong to hold up the independence of South Sudan to be able to resolve the issue of ABA. Uh, John Kerry, as Secretary of State, made that quite clear. So the international community is not really going to take much interest in ABA. It, it, it still doesn't take it. I mean, it didn't take interest in, in ABA. And of course, UN peacekeeping forces are very difficult to organize. What is the central command? What authority do they have? A few years ago, uh, the UN force that was supposed to be protecting uh, the paramount chief of the Nokdinka, their, their, uh, their convoy was attacked by the Missouria. The Missouria managed to kill the paramount chief. The UN force that was there to protect him shot at the Missouria. And now and then the Missouria then demanded compensation for the people that the UN killed. So there's really very little uh, legal uh, force behind the, the UN force uh, in the UNIF uh, in ABA. Uh, there's really very little that they can do because they really don't have the authority uh, to disarm, uh, shoot back, um, or protect uh, uh, the people that they're sent to protect. That's an interesting point, Joshua. It was reported that Salva Kiir was seeking a meeting with the US president. When that didn't transpire, it was reported he went to meet 
with the Russian president. How much global interest and jockeying is there going on? I mean, around Abye, not at all. That's not really a, a question. The, the, the fundamental political impasse of Abye is because though Salva Kiir spent 20 years fighting against Khartoum and against Bashir's regime, since South Sudanese independence, there's been a realignment that's seen Salva get much closer, first to Bashir's government and then to Burhan's government. And for those two governments, it's politically expedient for them to not resolve the crisis in Abye. Because to say to not resolve it means that Burhan can continue to try to keep the Misseria on side and the, the Misseria's political constituency has been contested with the RSF. And for Salva Kiir, it means that he can continue to claim to be in favor of the Ngoc and Abiy rejoining South Sudan, while also keeping quite powerful Ngoc politicians out of the government and not having to deal with them within his coalition. That's really the question. The question is about Sudanese and South Sudanese power politics as Douglas Johnson rightly said. The question of the regions and Russia in terms of South Sudan, especially in terms of Abyei, isn't really a factor in what's going on at the moment. All right, we'll leave the discussion there. Let's thank our guests very much for joining us. Kennedy Mabongo, Douglas Johnson and Joshua Craze. This episode was produced by Dermot Fleming, Katia Lopez-Odeyan, Veronica Pedroza and Jimmy Getterhun. Studio sound was by Fazal Yahya. The program was edited by Alex Kola, Zainab Badr, David Enders, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. Tune in on Wednesday for our next edition. Coming up on The Take... The Boeing 737 MAX 9 is back in the air after a hole blew open on a plane in mid-flight. Is the model safe to fly? That's The Take by Al Jazeera. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.